I can't take financial risks like this anymore. If this doesn't work out, I was like, what do I do? I can't make another movie. My first one didn't work. And I was like, I guess I'll try being a YouTuber. Austin McConnell, YouTuber, filmmaker. How did an early passion for film took this man from a difficult life in a small town to online video success? Buckle up, this one is one heck of a story. I am Alex, and this is Genesis. Let me start with my favorite intro question, which is, what do you tell strangers that you do for a living? I just tell them I'm a YouTuber, really. I mean, it's kind of gotten to the point to where most folks know what that is. You might be the first person in this podcast that actually answers that directly instead of just going around. I'm not ashamed of the title. I mean, it's everybody uses YouTube. <laughs> I don't. I used to do the thing where I would say, "Oh, well, I'm I work in online video," but that just sounds weird. Just say YouTuber. I mean, everybody I know uses YouTube, and YouTubers can get a bad rap because of certain, I guess, unsavory characters. But I think the web is big enough now to where people. I don't think you should be ashamed of that title. You never get any weird reactions to it? No, usually I just, when I say I'm a YouTuber, they go, ooh, what kind of stuff do you make? Oh. And then then I run into some issues because I've got no clue how to answer that. (laughs) (laughs) I was hoping to get a question on that myself. So before talking about your channel and your work in general, let's go to the very beginning. So where were you born? I was born in a uh, small town, Springfield, Missouri. And how would you describe your <laughs> your earlier time of your life? I'm laughing a little bit because the last person I interviewed told me that they felt they were the therapist, and now I cannot stop thinking about this when I make this question. But but yeah, the, this <laughs> is take this as, as a form of <laughs> public self therapy. How were your first years of life? You know, I don't know. I had a rough. I had a rough childhood growing up. I I don't want to get into all the details, but suffice it to say, I had a rough home life, and I was able to use art and creativity as a way of of coping with that. That's a good way to put it. And that's one of the marvelous things about art. Did you feel then growing up that art or creativity was something that you wanted to integrate as a career path? Yeah, I think so. I I remember it was like 1997 and I was watching the special edition of Return of the Jedi in theaters and it was at the climax of the movie where Luke is about to cut Darth Vader down and the Emperor is egging him on to do it and he, he takes a look at his dad and he takes a look at his robotic hand and he shuts his lightsaber off and he throws it away. He says, never, I'll never turn to the dark side. You know, you failed your highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. I'll never turn to the dark side. You failed your highness. I am a Jedi, like my father before me. And then John Williams' score lifts up. I just remember watching that as a kid, and I was like, whoa, that's a story. I want to make stuff like this. Like, I want to, because it was really hitting me in my in my heart, and I was like, if I could make something like this, that would be awesome. 
And so I think I think the the movies were probably a good they were they were a heavy influence on my life growing up, I think. And of course I I read and I was into books and video games as well, but for some reason I just took to video more than anything. Were you considering film school from that early on as a thing that you could do later in your life? Oh no, I don't I didn't know anything about film school or anything like that. I just I just knew that feeling I had in my gut as a kid and I was like I know that now that I know you can feel something like this from this medium let me investigate it. I remember my grandpa had a an old VHS camcorder that he would take home movies with and when it got to be old and junky he he just gave it to me and I'd run around with it and make, you know, dumb little videos and that was fun. And as I grew older I started finding more opportunities to work in video. As you got to remember, I work, I live in a small town, right? And it's not L.A., it's not New York, it's not even Texas or Georgia. It's there's no real heavy filmmaking scene, so to speak. So I didn't have any avenue like that. You know, I I started messing around with this VHS camera. And then I think I turned probably 13, I think it was 13 or 14, my mom and dad bought me a mini DV camcorder. And that changed my world, man. I, I got that and started shooting around with it, making all kinds of cool stuff. I was getting into high school and I was like, I want to make stuff, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And then I started kind of looking around and I found this film festival, oh. the Kansas Annual National Film Festival, I think at KU, and they had a student film section or a student film category. And as long as you were a student and you weren't in college, but you were pre-college, you could, you could enter a short film. And so I got a couple of my buddies together who we were all, you know, nerds and like to run around and and pretend. And I wrote this script for this, you know, pathetic little short film. It was my first time ever making something. And I didn't know what I was doing. I was flying by the seat of my pants. But I took that camcorder and we shot this like five minute short film. And I entered it into the festival and it won. It won the student film category. Hold on, hold on. What, what was the film about? Oh, I think the, I think the, man, this is going way back. I'm trying to remember. I think the sponsor of the award was D.A.R.E., which in America is like a drug mm. awareness. I don't, I don't remember what drug, or what D.A.R.E. stands for, but it's like, you know, keeping kids off of drugs, mm-hmm. telling them not to use drugs. I think they were the sponsor of it. And it had to be, had to be centered around that. So it was some story about some kids who get messed up and I don't know drugs and they're in, in freshman high school. I, I this is going so far back. I don't know. I can I can assure you that whatever it was, it was terrible. <laughs> but, but we made this film and I entered it, entered it into the festival and it won the student category and I was able to go on stage and get, you know, a little trophy and there was like a $100 cash prize or something like that. And man from from there, I was just off to the races. I was like, wow, that was, I mean, that was really pivotal for me. It was such a dinky little award looking back. But like as a kid, 
you know, I don't even think I was, I think I was entering into high school at this point. You know, I was picked on a lot. I was a nerdy kid, didn't have a whole lot of friends. And the friends that I had were quirky in their own right. And I never really felt like I was, you know, popular or anything like that, or that I would ever have the ear of people or the eyes of an audience. And that was pivotal for me as a young kid, you know, as a young kid to be able to take a camera and plan out something and shoot something and put it together, edit it, everything on your own. It was a project. Like I put more work into that thing than I felt like I ever put into any projects at school. (laughs) But then to be able to like submit that to an event and have people in a theater watch it and then uh, talk about it and then, you know, get some kind of accolades or recognition for it. I mean, that changed my world. So at that point I was like, man, I want to, I want to keep doing this. And so I immediately enrolled into TV video classes in high school. Mom and dad, they quit badgering me so much about running around with cameras and, you know, shooting stuff or spending money on camera equipment or props. Like I'd go to Walmart and I'd get like little Nerf guns or whatever. And it's like, oh, my kid's just wasting his money on this stuff. But I'd be like, no, it's a prop for a thing I'm going to make. They would go, sure, whatever. But then I won that award and suddenly they were like, ah, this is, you know, this is maybe the start of something. Maybe this is his way. He's finding his, you know, creative voice. Mm -hmm. And so they stopped badgering me so much about doing weird experiments with cameras because, you know, to see their son on stage take, you know, get an award and get a little bit of money, even if it's like a hundred bucks, but, you know, some return on investment, I think, you know, at that point they were like, okay, you know, do what you need to do. I, I took TV video classes in high school and I eventually took a dual enrollment, which is where you can take college courses while you're in high school. And I went up to the local technical college and started taking their TV video courses in their electronic media production department. And there I got access to some big boy cameras. You know, I wasn't just shooting on my little camcorder. I was able to take like this Sony FX1, you know, just heavy three CCD camera that had, you know, huge flip out screen on it and all kinds of cool stuff. And it shot really high definition video. I got to mess around with that stuff. Like we didn't have film school in Springfield, but they did have college classes, like technical community college courses, which I actually preferred because instead of like having to sit through two years of theory before being able to touch a camera, they just gave you a camera on the first day and said, okay, now make this by next week. (laughs) And, you know, you immediately got hands-on experience, which was really, it was really rewarding. And then there started to be this event in my... Uh, hometown. It was called Sato 48, Springfield and the Ozarks 48-Hour Film Challenge. It was this this event where you would be given two days to make a short film. It had to be a five-minute short film maximum. You know, you would not know what your film was about. You would get to the event site, and they would give you an envelope. Everybody would open the envelope at the same time, and on it would be a couple lines of dialogue, a theme and usually a prop that had to be featured prominently in your short film. You'd open that envelope up, you'd read through it, they'd ask if there were any questions, and then they they looked at you and they said, okay, you have two days, come back here in two days with a film, go. 
That's amazing. Yeah, it's a great event, especially if you're just starting out and you don't know if you want to really do video. If you, you know, if you're wanting to try and be a professional in video production, it's great. If you're just a guy or a girl with a group of friends who want to make something goofy for the weekend, it's great too. Anybody can com- compete. I don't really like to say compete, but you know, we're all in it together in my in my mind, but so I did that. I did this uh, 48-hour film challenge. I put this movie together. The great thing about it was that they had this award ceremony at the Gloys Theater, which is this really, really fancy. It's like the fanciest place in Springfield. It's this fancy period design theater. And they would have like this Academy Awards style award ceremony. And they would take all of the films, you know, they would be judged by this judging panel. And then you would get there and it was like the Academy Awards in this little town. You know, folks would dress up. It was at this big gala event. It was a big deal. Yeah, they had like, you know, categories like best directing, best music, best art direction, you know, best actor or actress. And so I I, I did my first 48-hour film and ended up winning like six awards. Wow. Which was like really unheard of at the time especially because I was way younger than most other folks competing. At this time, I was still in high school, and most folks there were getting out of high school or were starting college. And it was so cool. I mean, it was sort of embarrassing. It was kind of a nightmare at one point because it was like they just kept saying, and the award goes to Austin McConnell, and the award goes to Austin McConnell. Everyone's getting mad because like nobody else is winning anything, and I'm just, I have to keep going up there and taking trophies. Like, I was thinking, man, if I get nominated for something, that'd be great. If I win, you're like, first of all, I'm not going to win. But in the back of your mind, you're like, okay, if I do win, you start scribbling out little acceptance speech, who you want to thank and all that. You know, I gave the first acceptance speech and I said everything I wanted to say because I didn't think I was <laughs> going to get up there again. But then they called my name five more times. Like every time I got up, people were getting progressively more mad. <laughs> like, you know, when you when you get up and you give an award or get an award, you know, the first time you get up there, everybody's smiling, clapping, everybody's looking at you, big smile on their face. They're they're happy for you. And then by like the third time, they're kind of like, okay, let's get somebody else up there. But you know, it was all it was a great learning experience. And that was just like the next step for me. It was a new event and it was a timed event and it helped me to get better. So I did that for, you know, several years. I think by the end of it, I had won like, I want to say 16 different awards. And I like have like the record for the most awards of that event. And I eventually stopped doing it because, well, because everything else happened, but I did say 048, but that's just a one year event. And simultaneously I was, as the years went by, I'm like trying to find a job, you know, like (laughs) I think when you get when you get an award, it was like they gave you a hundred dollar cash prize, and I won six awards, so I got like six hundred bucks, which is really cool. But you're doing that once a year, and I'm like, I need to I need to start thinking about how to support myself and my family. We were going through some really really rough times, so I started doing odd jobs. You know, I would do computer gigs. I did technical support for a unnamed computer company, we'll say, in a call center. And was trying to make money that way. And the whole time I was like, how do I turn this hobby into something where I can support myself and keep doing it? Like I had movie ideas I wanted to make, but no money to make them with. 
can I do this? Can I be self-sustaining with this? How can I continue to do my art and support myself? I think that's the big question for everybody. And so I started, you know, there's no film industry in Springfield, but what they did have was local news. There's a TV studio or a TV station, like the news program. And I was like, okay, there's something I could do. You get a camera that's working with cameras for money. Let me see if I can do that. So I put my application in and just like never got a call back for like years. Oof. And I was at this point, I was taking TV video courses in college, hoping to get an associate's degree because I was like, that's probably a prerequisite to get the job at the TV studio. And I was doing Sado and all of that, but just not finding any kind of traction at all. And eventually, I think it was at one of those Sado award ceremonies, actually, I bumped into as I was, as we were doing the get together, like afterwards, as I'm heading out to the car, bumped into a guy who was one of the judges of the event. And he was like the direct, like the head director or whatever of KY3, which is the local news station in Springfield, the one I kept trying to apply to get a job for. So I bump into him. And he's like, hey, congratulations, man. You, man, you keep taking those home every year. And I was like, thanks, thanks. And, you know, I'm really enjoying the event. And it's really helping me grow. And he goes, you're Austin McConnell, right? And I'm like, yep. And he goes, I have had your resume sitting on my desk for years. <laughs> oh, my God. And he's like, but we just haven't had an opening. He's like, there's just no place really that we can... But it's there. He's like, I know who you are. I've got your resume and I've got your demo reel and all that. He's like, if something comes up, he's like, you're going to be, you know, you're at the top of the list to call. And I said, great. So I'm thinking like within the next month, I'm going to hear something. No, not at all. <laughs> like that opportunity like never came like three, four, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a year later. Who knows at this point? I can't keep track, but I put my application in at the sister studio, KSPR 33 which is owned by the same company, but it's the ABC affiliate. The KY3 was the NBC affiliate. They both work in the same building, but they're two separate stations. Really confusing, but that's just how it ended up working. So like one half of the building is KY3, the other half of the building is KSPR, and they like trade out material with each other, but they're still two separate. They're two separate entities run by the same overall pot of money. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good metaphor for American politics. <laughs> anyway, so I put in my resume for them and I got a call back in a week and they said, hey, we have an opening for photojournalist. And I was like, sure, let's do it. So I get there. I, like, actually, I think I ran into that director the, f the first day. He's like, hey, what are you doing here? I was wearing a, you know, the opposing station jacket. They gave me a jacket when I first started working there. He's like, what, what are you doing wearing there? And I was like, oh, I just started there. He's like, ah man, I was going to call you really soon, but it looks like they got you first. And I'm like, well, whatever. All right. I'm, you know, I'm making money at this point. I'm getting a paycheck. I think I'm getting paid like 12 or $13 an hour as a photojournalist. And I say photojournalist, really it's videographer. They gave me this big clunky camera and I would run around, get the news stories. If there were car accidents, house fires, you know, anything crazy happen. I was like the underling, the lackey that they would send out to a dangerous shoot. Like if there was a standoff, oh they would send me out there to with the camera to record stuff, to get all the B-roll for the news report. And then every now and then I would get paired up with an on-camera personality 
and we would do some news stories. I was driving, I was driving to Arkansas for you know hours and hours just to get these shots. Like I remember one. This is a side note. This this is not going to go into the podcast because it's such a it's, it's a story that goes nowhere. I remember one week that it started snowing and it was like I don't know May or something. It was like really ridiculous, you know, Missouri weather. Except this took place in Arkansas. Wow, what a story! So they <laughs> said, "Hey, go up there, or go down to Arkansas, get some shots of the snowy weather." And because I was the underling, they gave me like the worst company news van that had like all kinds of problems. I had the worst equipment and everything. I was the entry guy. So I drove down there and I got stuck in the snow filming stuff. And it was supposed to be a half day shift for me. And I ended up, I had to sit out there because I was in the middle of nowhere. And this is before I had like a, you know, fancy iPhone whatever. And I'm in backwoods, Arkansas. So reception's not that good. My cell phone is like dying. And I'm like, I'm going to die out here. There's no, (laughs) like my phone's going to die. And so I ended up like communicating through the news van with like the live with the satellite dish or whatever. And I'm like, Hey, my phone is about to die. And the car is stuck in the snow. And I don't know where I'm at because like I didn't have GPS or anything. Of course. Oh God. And I'm like, so I don't know what you guys want me to do. And so eventually I, I trekked a little bit, found street signs, figure out where I was. And they sent a, a towing company out to pull me out of the snow. I finally got home. What ended up was supposed to be a half day. I ended up working like six hours overtime, maybe seven hours overtime because I was you know, I was stuck. I couldn't go home or anything, but I was able to be paid overtime and a half because I was out there. So like even the worst days, I was still surrounded by cameras. And I knew at the end of the day, no matter how, how you know difficult it was or frustrating it was, I was still making some money doing it. And that's about as good as it was going to get where I was at. But I couldn't shake the feeling that I was like, I felt frozen. I felt kind of like stifled, because I was doing these news stories that I didn't really care about that much. Like the news stories I cared about, the network wasn't interested in because it wasn't going to get eyeballs. And for a local station, you're doing daily stories, whatever's happening around town that day. There were other more interesting stories around Missouri that I felt like, wow, you could do some great like documentary-style stuff with this. You could tell some good stories, but you know, you only get 90 seconds Mm -hmm. on the news station for your package. And it's like, I can't go into in-depth. And I'm just the photojournalist. Nobody cares what I have to say. They just throw me out there to get the shot. So I was getting frustrated. And the other thing was technical issues. Like, it's owned by this big company, and everything has to go through corporate before it gets approved. And all their equipment was like, it was 10 years old. Like, my... At this point, I had graduated to the DSLR world. I had fancier cameras, and I had my own editing station at home to make those short films. And I'd drive into work, and I would have to use this old equipment that was slower. The cameras weren't as good. The editing software was like the difference between working at NASA at home and working like in a cave when I went to work. (laughs) Oh, my God. Wow. And the whole reason was because, like, you know, I understand now as a grown-up, like, they have their workflow that works for them. You know, they have their master control operator. Everything has to be patched into this central system. You have to have redundancy to make sure. Because, like, what are you going to do? Just not have the news because something breaks? You can't do that. The news has to be there. So 
it was old equipment, but it was equipment that they knew worked and was reliable. But I felt stifled by it. Like there were several weeks I got in trouble at work because I would go into work, I would get my news assignment for that day, and they'd say, have your package in by whatever it was, there's uh, six o'clock news, so have it in by 5.30. I would say, great, sure, okay. I would immediately leave work and go home and grab my own film equipment, and I would go out and I would shoot the story, I would go home, I would edit it at home super fast because I knew my stuff and my equipment was faster. And then I would drive back to work and then I would run my finished video through their software thing. So I would like make it appear as if it was going through their workflow so that it would work with all their equipment. And then I I would submit that and I would get my packages done faster than everybody else. And it would look better because I was using these fancy lenses. You know, the news camera they give you is just a standard zoom lens to where you can film whatever. It's like a catch-all thing. I was using prime lenses, like cinematic stuff, lens flares and all of that. I was doing these, you know, great visual stories, but it was it was of like dumb stuff like traffic jam on I-44 <laughs> or, you know, standoff at such and such lane. And But the shots looked beautiful. And eventually one of the higher-ups was like, man, this stuff, how'd you get this image? How'd you, this looks really good. How'd you do that? And I was like, oh, I just use my stuff. And he was like, what? And I was like, oh, I just use my personal camera and I just edit it at home. It's faster for me because like this, it's just, it's faster technology. And he was like, oh, we can't, you can't do that. We can't have that at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? I understand now, you know, as an adult, it's a liability. It's proprietary stuff. It's like footage you're, you can't have that on your personal computer. That probably breaks all kinds of confidentiality laws or whatever that I didn't think about at the time. But I, my thinking was, oh, they were going to look at my stuff and go, this stuff looks great. How can we, let's ask him what his workflow is and then do that here. That's what I thought was going to happen. What ended up happening was he's not using our workflow. We can't have that. You got to use our stuff. And I, you know, I gave them suggestions. If you would just, you know, $3,000 of your, you know, however many $100,000 budget that you spend probably every year, just spend that on this and you'll be able to get stories done in half the time. No, can't do that because it's got to go through corporate. It's got to go through all, you know, it's got to go through committee. And I'm like, I just felt really stifled and I was really frustrated. And it got to the point to where I was like, I kind of dreaded going into work because just the news environment, some of my coworkers were just mean. And the stories we were covering, I started seeing a lot of sensationalism happening in local news. Like that happens in national news. You just sort of create a controversy so that people will be upset and they'll tune in Mm -hmm. and, you know, watch commercials, basically. (laughs) I started seeing that kind of mindset, that sort of clickbait, generate a controversy that's not really there for the purpose of driving ad revenue. I started to see that happen in local news. And I was like, I don't know that I, I don't know whether I want to do this anymore. But I, I wasn't sure what to do. Like, I left college. I don't know that I've really made this really widely known. I never got my college degree because the reason I was in college was to get a degree to get a job at the news station. Wow. 
but I ended up getting the job at the news station without the degree. So I was like, why am I going to spend money at college? Because at that point, like once you're there, at that point, they don't care about your college education. You, you know, if you're going to get promoted, it'll be for your work at the station. And, you know, at that point, they just care about work experience. So I didn't have my college degree fully, but I wanted to make videos about stuff that I felt would be more impactful, stuff that would have a longer shelf life than the five o'clock show, you know, to be dispensed the next day. So a lot of a lot of personal stuff, private stuff happened with my family. Mom got really, really sick, had a falling out with my parents. Eventually it wound up to where I moved to I moved to Arkansas. Well let me let me back up a bit. Before I moved to Arkansas, I was like, okay, I want to make a movie. I want to make a, a feature-length movie and because I, I feel like I got something to say and I feel like I can make something that's really quality. I was sick of doing short films and I was sick of doing, you know, the news station stuff. So I, I said, let me write a script. So I wrote a script for a feature, this movie called Sprouting Orchids. And I was like, let me see if I can make an independent feature. I could probably send that to like Sundance and like, I could be like the next Quentin Tarantino, like, you know, the big breakout indie hit. So I left the TV studio to make this feature. And that was, man, that was a journey in and of itself. But to make a long story you, short. You left your job at the station to film this? Yeah. Wow. that That's just putting all your cards on the table, huh? Yeah, it was really stupid. I can't believe I did that. <laughs> no, to be to be honest, here was the thing. It was like I talked with, I talked to a lot of people and I'm a firm believer in in taking realistic risks. I, I, I don't know that, you know, all these YouTubers that are hyper successful talk about their big leap of faith moment. I've always taken like leaps of faith in some respect, but I've always been smart about it to where I knew that if it fails, I'll be okay. So I knew if it didn't work out with the feature, I could always go back to the TV studio and, you know, start over, even if I need to do the bottom rung thing and work my way back up, I could always go back and do that. I had talked with folks that I used to go to college with, or people who used to teach at college. There was this understanding that, hey, if things ever get desperate, I could always teach night classes at the local college. Like there was this, I don't know if this is still the case, but you could teach night classes at this particular technical college in certain departments without having a teaching degree. It's probably not like that with every department, but with TV video, they allowed that, at least at that point. So I was like, okay, let me, let me just try and do this. I left the station, and at that point I had worked up, you know, my own little arsenal of equipment. I had been saving my money. You know, I'd been saving everything that I had while I was working at the TV studio. It's funny, it was for me, it was always like, save, 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 so that you will be able to be okay for a while so that you can take risks, have some financial runway. I grew up, you know, man, we had a lot of debt in our family. We, you know, bankruptcy was just like the talk of every day in my household because we just were, we just didn't have any money. We were just up to debt. My parents made horrible, horrible financial decisions and things were really, really rough for a long time there. When I got out on my own, I was like, I'm going to be smart about this. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to spend a bunch of money on frivolous whatever. I'm always going to have a plan to recoup 
my investments, so to speak. So I've been working up all this, you know, a fair amount of money, and I did a crowdfund campaign. I had some angel investors who said they'd hop on as well, raised up enough money to shoot this feature. And, you know, long story short, went out and shot this feature. It's called Sprouting Orchids, and it was my first time ever making a big feature-length film. You know, I learned a lot, but it was a tough experience. I think I grew up making that movie, made a lot of mistakes, and learned a lot of lessons about who to trust, who not to trust, and what to do to put something together. I went to a real dark place trying to get that movie done. I made a video about it. I don't want to go off on it too much, but it was a, it was a journey to get it done. Got it done, sent it off to a few film festivals, and there's there's like this creative's high. Like when you first make something, at least for me, with this film, like the first month I made it, it's, you know, that's all I was looking at for months and months of my life. And I was like blinded to the flaws. I thought it was one of the coolest things ever. I sent it out, I wait a month and I look at it again and I'm like, man, this is trash. This is not good. I can't believe I'm so embarrassed. And I got rejected by all the big festivals. Eventually a couple of fest, a couple of smaller festivals or medium festivals in foreign countries accepted the film and it got screened, but I didn't have a passport. And at that point I was spent. There was no way I could go see it. So like my movie premiered in a foreign theater to an audience of over a hundred people. And I wasn't there. I didn't get to see it. I didn't get to see their reactions. I don't know what they thought about it. That's crazy. It's tough, man. Like, you put all this work into it, and I'm like, man, with the local stuff, I at least got to sit in the theater and and watch the movie and see people's reactions. That roller coaster of emotion with no payout. Yeah. I mean, the, the event posted on their Instagram, my movie in this packed venue playing for the first time, and I'm like, I don't get to be there. It's just tough. Well, I mean, eventually... The film didn't do well at all. I didn't have an audience. Like, I was just the local film guy in Springfield. Nobody was going to watch my movie because nobody knew who I was. I failed to, I failed to understand that at that point in time. At that point, some other personal stuff happened. Then I moved to Arkansas. And when I was in Arkansas, you know, I was working hard, trying to support myself, trying to get my nest egg back up again for two reasons. Number one, I wanted to try again some creative stuff. Number two, I met a girl and we dated for a long time. Of course, you know, fell in love with her. We got engaged and around the time I got engaged to her, well, this wouldn't be around the time we got engaged, but this is when we started getting more serious. I looked at my life and I was like, okay, I, I got to be there for her. Like I can't, when you get married, you can't mess around anymore. Like you've got somebody that's, you know, that's your partner in life. But also if we start having a family, I got to support my family and I can't be noodling around in these crazy, just take a risk, make a feature. And if it doesn't work out well, I can't give six months of my life to this thing that might not be successful after I take this big step. So I set I was in Arkansas and I had no friends, man. Was, oh, sorry, I'm getting a little... <laughs> I haven't really talked about this. No, no, that, that, that's fine. This is an important part of your story. Right, yeah. I was 
I was in Arkansas and I didn't have any friends. And I was like, this is, this is, I'm about to turn the page on a new chapter in my life. And it, this last chapter did not work out the way I wanted it to. And I was like, how do I, is this it? And so I looked at my account and I said, okay, I can make it maybe three or four months before I'm broke again. And if I do go broke again, then I can get some money. You know, I can work way overtime, get the money back, but I, I can't take financial risks like this anymore if this doesn't work out. I was like, what do I do? I can't make another movie. My first one didn't work. And I was like, I guess I'll try being a YouTuber. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I I had a few YouTube ideas. This was around the time video essays started getting popular on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I started watching these video essays. These people would give their takes on meanings of films and all that. And a lot of them were really popular, but I didn't think, I don't want to throw stones. <laughs> I thought they weren't going as deep as you could go. They could be better. They could be better. Yes, absolutely. They could be better. And I was watching this stuff and I was seeing the view count on some of these. And I was like, I could do this. Like, I can do this. Like, I know I can. At that point, I had been on YouTube since 2007. I believe 2007, since, I mean, Lonely Girl 15 days before. Boy, that's a whole other story I didn't even get to, but whatever. I had been on YouTube a long time, and I was just putting, like, glorified camera tests on my channel, which are which is fine to do, but I didn't understand that, like, if you want to make money doing this to support yourself, you have to treat it as if it is a business. You have to actually treat it with a level of seriousness that it deserves if you want to be rewarded in that way, financially speaking. And I put my Sado films on YouTube, which they get a thousand views, but it was just other Sado competitors checking out the competition that year. You know, nothing that was going to have a wide appeal to an audience. So I sat down and I was like, okay, I've got like four months tops. Let me see if I can do this. And I, I said, what do I need to do? I need to quit with camera tests. I need to quit with short films that aren't going to have mass market appeal. It finally dawned on me. What if I make something that people will actually want to watch? Like that's, it seems so laughable to think about now. Like, duh, makes it, but you'd be surprised how many people, like they can't find success online or on YouTube. And it's like, well, look at your stuff. Would people want to watch that? Yep. And if the answer is no, it's like, well, there you go. I couldn't get that through my dumb head. And I think it was because I was so egotistical. I felt like my art was just, you know, oh, if you didn't get it, then you just weren't smart enough. It's like, no, dummy, you're not conveying your story well enough for people to appreciate. Like, if you want people to watch your story and really understand the message, you've got to convey this, tell the story better in a way they can understand. Like, it's not a failure on the audience to not understand. It is a failure on you as the creator in effectively communicating your message. Wow. Sorry, I've had a lot of coffee. <laughs> no, but it's fantastic. It's great advice. Right. This is this is like, this is going through my head. So I sat down, I was like, okay, let me make some stuff that people are going to actually want to watch. I just read Harry Potter and the Cursed Child which is like the the eighth Harry Potter book. It really wasn't. It wasn't written by J.K. Rowling. She hired out, and it was a stage 
play and it was it was not a book it was just the script of the stage play but they had marketed it as if it was a Harry Potter book I got it I read it and I was so mad because I was like this is not a good story <laughs> at all and I was like let me just kind of I don't want to do a rant I don't want to just like be the cliche get online everything's the worst ever you know clickbait, trash stuff that's okay-ish, you know, act like I know what I'm talking about. I didn't want to be that guy that just everything is awful, hypercritical. You know, I didn't want to do that. So I, I was like, let me write out a thorough essay on everything that doesn't work and why I don't think it works and what I would do instead. And I worked on that for like two months. And while I was working on that, I started doing some shorter videos as well about other topics. I uh, started talking about some small films. I did this video about uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. I did, I, I think I was started working on the video about my feature film and the failure of that, you know, that whole experience. I started working on all this stuff and I started just sort of saving it up and just wait until I had what I felt was like a backlog of stuff I could release. And I put the Harry Potter video out first first, I think. I'm kind of fuzzy on the details. Put that video out and it got a thousand views. And I was like, ah, oh, well, whatever. Oh, well, it was worth a shot. But then like a couple days later, it had 3000 views. I'm like, that's the highest I've ever gotten. That's interesting. I'll wait a week. It gets to 10,000 views. I remember at that point I took a screenshot of it because I was like 10,000 is higher than anything, like all my other stuff put together. This is probably as good as it gets. I don't know what it was about maybe the algorithm back then or if it was just people were more likely to click on a video that said 10K instead of 1K on the view counter on the sidebar. But I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and had like 32,000 views. I was like, what's happening here? Over the next week or two, it, I mean, it blew up. It started getting close to like a hundred thousand, eventually it reached like a hundred thousand views and I started releasing my next videos I'd been working on. I started slowly rolling those out and then I started watching the view count get up. I'm getting 50,000, 60, 150,000, 200,000. This is crazy. This is actually, this is working. I was, able to like be in the partner program. And so I started getting a little bit of money, not a lot, but a little bit. That's more than I'd ever made from Sato. And I was like, this is awesome. And as this is happening over those preceding months, I ended up making this video about Kentucky Fried Chicken or whatever that uh, ended up going viral. I think it went on a trending page. And over the course of time, I was like, I am making just like a hair less amount of money than what I made at the TV station. But I'm so much happier and I'm actually making stuff I want to make. And at that point I was like, okay, this is working. But I was terrified of failing. So I kept my other jobs and I started, I had a full-time job and then several part-time jobs of which being a YouTuber was one of them. And I, I kept doing that. I, I I got married. I mean, I, I well, I didn't get married right away. I, I got engaged to my wife. I was saving all of my YouTube money. I was terrified of being in debt. My wife and I had like a long engagement because 
I didn't feel like we were financially ready to get married. I had a number, which I won't reveal publicly, but I had a number that I told her, and I said, when my bank account gets to this amount of money, we'll be okay for at least a year. You know, the first year of marriage is really tough, and you're trying to find your routine, you're trying to figure out each other, living with each other. It's a new experience. And a lot of marriages, they they suffer that first year because of financial problems. Yep. And I was like, if I can, if I can make sure that before we even hit this, you know, come out the starting gate, if I can make sure we're okay for the first year financially, maybe not first year, like first nine or ten months, then that'll help us out a lot. And boy, it did. That's a that was a tremendously mature approach to getting married. Well, I think part of that is because my parents' marriage was such a mess. Yeah. It was such a failure and it it really affected me as a kid growing up that I like had the example of what not to do and I was desperate to do the opposite because I didn't want to mess it up, right? Because I love her so much. But considering how much people tend to repeat the mistakes yeah. of their family and what they're raised around, like kudos to you for actually observing it and rationally being like, hey, I'm going to do everything in my power to do the contrary of that yeah. so it actually works. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I don't drink. One of the ways I don't, reasons I don't do drugs or smoke or anything like that. Like my father was an alcoholic and it was a terrible situation growing up. I'm like, I'm never touching this stuff, um, you know. Jury's still out on alcoholism if there's genetic things that go with that. But I saw how it ruined his life. And I was like, yeah, not for me. And so... Good job. And it was important. Well, thanks. It was important for me to get the right spouse, somebody who was going to help me in that respect and not be a hindrance. And so anyway, I mean, we got married. I started doing more and more of these videos. I got a viral hit what happens if your parachute fails, I think is the title of the video. What to do if your parachute fails. I was joking around with some friends. At this point, we were thinking about moving back to Springfield because we were doing okay financially. At this point, we'd, we'd been married for a few months and we were in the middle of nowhere, Arkansas. And she didn't have, you know, we had each other. She didn't have friends out there. I didn't have friends out there. And all our friends were in Springfield or a lot of them were in Springfield. So we thought, let's see if we can move back in the next few years and then I was joking around with some of my friends from Springfield when we went to visit, and I got this idea for this this video. Like, a, it'd be a dumb little off video that would just be funny, it'd be like four minutes long. It's an instructional video. What do you do if your parachute fails? It's like an online YouTube tutorial, one of those videos. But it's done as if you have just jumped out of the plane and your parachute has failed. So like it's a it's a tutorial, but the guy but I'm screaming at you the entire time is to calm down. You're going to be okay. Here's what you need to do. Do this right away. You know, entertaining video. I released that, and that thing exploded. I mean, it's still to this day the highest viewed video on my channel. It's got actually I was looking at this the other day. I think it's been viewed more times than one of the Star Wars trailers on the official like wow. YouTube channel. Like that's crazy to me. And I see clips of it pop up. Stolen oh, in yeah. TikTok all the time. Yeah, like everybody on TikTok has made that video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, everybody makes that video. Like, uh, that's a whole other thing. There's, I don't know how I feel about it. It's, it's what I enjoy about it is when I see somebody who has ripped it off and just, you know, completely stolen my video. Like, I understand being inspired if you want to make your own version of that kind of video, but to literally just take the video 
and just re-upload it. I mean, that's that's not going to fly. And so, but I like seeing every now and then somebody who's ripped it off. And in the comments section, the people in the comments are like defending my honor. It's like, <laughs> you stole this from Austin McConnell on YouTube, which is cool to see. But when that video went viral, like right out the gate when I released it, and I had AdSense turned on, I started getting sponsorship offers from companies. And once that started happening, my wife and I looked at each other and we're like, you know what, this is, we can live off of this. This is a, this is a career. This is, your part-time job is paying you like triple or quadruple what your full-time job is. And so at that point it was like, this, this was the plan, right? If I was going to try it out for a few months and if it worked, then it worked. And if it didn't, I had a backup plan. Well, it worked. And so, you know, from here on out, I've been, I've been trying to effectively, you know, I wanted to be the filmmaker with the movie in the festival, the big breakout indie hit. But that was a dream for a different time. We're living in a new time now with online video. And I had to readjust my expectations of what I wanted that sort of career path or that dream to be. You know, I don't know if the stuff I make is ever going to be in lots of big fancy movie theaters, but I know this. I know that last month I had three and a half million unique visitors to my channel, and that'd fill a lot of movie theaters. And unlike my first feature film where I knew a bunch of people were watching it, but I didn't get to see their reaction, I can through online video. People tell me in the comments, I get to see their reactions there. I get to have a one-to-one connection with my audience. And so for me at this point, I just want to tell stories and I want to make the stuff I want to make. And right now, YouTube is the medium, so I'm a YouTuber. But I don't care what the medium is. I just want to be able to tell cool and interesting stories and maybe teach some lessons along the way. I mean, I wrote a book last year that just came out a few months ago. I don't care what the medium is. But I've been very lucky in that I, I've been able to find success in this respect and, and be able to do what I want to do. And I'm just going to see how long I can do it for. So you started not of the idea of making film, but the idea of finding a way of telling stories somehow. I think, I think it's an amalgamation of both. I think I realized when my film flopped, I was like, nobody is watching it because nobody knows who I am. I need I need a better way of growing an audience. Like the way things work now, you can't just stand on a street corner. You've got to over time patiently slowly develop this crowd of folks who enjoys the stuff you make. And so I'm a big believer in the slow path to success. I've been on YouTube since 2007 and I've got like 1.3 million subscribers. There are folks who have gotten way more subscribers than that in like three to six months. And that's good. That's great for them. But all I can do is share, you know, what my experience has been. I remember I held a workshop in Branson, Missouri once on how I got to 100,000 subscribers in however many years. I think it was like nine years or something, eight years, nine years, something like that. And some folks in the comments of this presentation when it was posted online was like, that's not that impressive at all. And I'm like, dude, it's impressive to me. There's tons of people out there who would do anything just to have like 
5,000 people watching their channel. That would mean the world to them. And it took me longer to get there, but I had to go about it a different way, and I don't think I would necessarily change how it happened. And I don't have the biggest audience. I don't have the smallest either. I think I heard somebody say, somebody told me the other day that I'm like a middle-class YouTuber. And I think that's pretty, you know, that's that's a funny way of looking at it, but I'm totally okay with that. I've got enough people to where, you know, I have a bigger audience than I ever thought I would have. I've already won at this point. I've already gotten more than I ever thought I would get. And so at this point, you know, at this point, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do what I wanna do and I not get caught up so much in the metrics. One of the things I do is I do small channel shout outs. I, um, I was just desperate to get like a YouTube shout out back in the day just to get some kind of people, some kind of eyes on my audience. And I know how tough it is, especially when you're starting from zero. So I, like at least once a year, I try and do it twice. I look for YouTube channels with less than 1,000 subscribers and I, I find a handful of them and I just make a video that's dedicated to promoting those channels. And every time I've done it, within like the one or two days, all those channels reach like over 10,000 subscribers. And it it's like the greatest feeling in the world because I remember what it felt like for me when that first video popped. Yeah. And it was just like an amazing feeling. And I'm like, I can do that for other people. I can look out and I can see people who are trying stuff. Maybe they don't have the best equipment, but they got a good idea and there's some potential there and they're willing to try it out. They're willing to kind of, you know, they're willing to take the risks, so to speak. And if I can give them that feeling, that's awesome. And I hope that every channel that I shout out, I hope they all become bigger than I am. I really honestly do. Now that you have reached this point where you're aware of your blessings and more satisfied mm -hmm. with the position that you have achieved, is there anything in the near future that you look forward to in terms of creativity? Would you like to be in a position where at some point you will be able to do a film not with the expectation of it needed to be economically sustained, but just because you want to tell the story? I mean, right now I'm dealing with some health stuff, but I mean, to make a long <laughs> yeah. story short, like, yes, like the plan is ultimately, you know, I've got these stories to tell and I'm going to tell them whether people, you know, what form it is, doesn't necessarily matter. If it's a feature film, if it's a series, that's great too. I want to see if I can, if I can translate the success I've had on YouTube to these other mediums. I tried an experiment this year, which did not go well, which I think I might make a video about how it didn't go well. It's kind of funny. My YouTube channel, like the central theme of it right now seems to be all of my creative failures. But I wrote, I wrote a book uh, last year. It got released this year and it has not sold well at all. It was a big attempt I had to like try and tell an original story, but you know, whatever, Whatever happened, it didn't get pushed to people's feeds, the announcement. I didn't do any kind of pre-hype. I just dropped it randomly, I think on a Friday, and not a lot of people saw it or whatever. It still sold, I mean, it sold more copies than anything else I had ever made sold, but I'm trying stuff. I think that's the, that's the big takeaway is that it's easy to get stuck in a rut when you're doing this. One of the reasons I don't have like a themed channel is because... I worry about getting 
getting stuck on one particular topic and getting bored by it. I want to keep doing stuff that's fresh. And so the theme of my channel is that I am the theme. Like anything that I'm interested in talking about or stories I'm interested in telling, that's what I'm going to make. Like my channel's weird. Like you look at my videos and like one week I'm doing like two to three million views. And then the next week, like maybe 20,000. It's like ridiculously all over the place because I have variety, a variety of content, which not a lot of people do these days. But I think I'm going to just going to, I'm just going to keep doing that for the foreseeable future to keep that sort of that baseline going. Um, I mean, it's sort of the same thought process as before. I've found something that is a steady success. I'm going to do that, you know, get all my resources together. And then when the time is right, I'll take another jump and see what I can come up with. That That's fantastic. Thank you for sharing your story. That was, that took way more turns than I expected. But I think... <laughs> One of the blessings of this podcast is that for every person that I bring on and get to hear the story, when I see their videos afterwards, I kind of start to understand or, or have a much better intuitive understanding of where that fascination is coming from. And given how many times I have seen in your channel, like these little bits of the, the importance that you give to stuff like local movie festivals, of being able to tell stories or shoot film with whatever you have and being conscious of your budget. Like having heard your story, I get it now. Like it, it clicks completely. And I think anyone that might hear this will, will have a much full nuanced understanding of what you create based on that. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. This, this has been a journey for sure. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really appreciate you having me on here. I mean, like this is weird for me because I don't talk about I mean, I talk about my personal life, but there, I haven't really gotten into the origins, so to speak. It's, I mean, if there's one thing I've learned the past year going through my heart issues, like in 2020, I lost my father figure and my mom died and I had health issues of my own. I'm realizing that life is short and so much of our time is wasted on petty stuff that just doesn't matter. And I've been able to get some insight and I now I know you know I know how limited life can be and I don't want to waste my life you know getting mad about I want to waste my life tweeting or getting mad about you know stuff on the news I you know I want to make meaningful stuff and like I said I've been very blessed in that I've been given the opportunity to do so and it's been fun to kind of reminisce today and and go through some of this stuff I appreciate you having me on <laughs>